morning, everyone. How you guys doing? Doing good? You guys are awake? Hey, Vaughn, welcome all of you who are online and those of you who are in our patio right now. I know it's a little cold right now, so I want you guys all to do this right now. I want you to warm up your hands, kind of just kind of just go next to the fire, my campfire right here, and just kind of draw near during this time. You know, um, long before there was things like digital media, long before there was, I would have to say, like books or maybe newspapers, even long before there was even the, the, the printing press, right? Culture was set by stories. And then people would come alongside maybe a fireplace just like this, a campfire, where generations of parents and grandparents and, and village leaders would gather all their kids and they would gather around a fire and they would tell them stories. You know, and that's how culture was set. You know, they would tell them stories about what was true, what was good, what was right, what was beautiful. They would tell them stories of redemption, of hope, and maybe a hope for a better, better days ahead. It was around a fire that they would go and just kind of warm themselves up with the crackling of the wood that they would go and tell them maybe times were hard. And they would tell them about the hard times that they would go through and the hardships they went through, but also how they went through those times. And although the mediums have changed, Stories remain the, the, the really the, the most primary way in how we go and set culture. You know, it's one of those things where, you know, we need to know the fact that, you know what, there's going to be times where in our days, there's, there's just hundreds of stories that happen around us all the time. In our days of digital media, you know, we often find these things in like Facebook now, within our phones, maybe Instagram, you know, those, those filtered images, those 140 tweets on, on Twitter, or maybe for those of you who do the TikTok thing, right? That's how the kind of stories we hear, hundreds of stories all the time. But it's one of those things, the fact that we hear all these different stories every single day, and it's hard to know what is true or what is untrue. And it's easy for us to become easily like discouraged or maybe confused of what is good and what is right and what is beautiful. But there's a better story that we know to be told. And we know it's through God's word. And it's through his word that it's a unified story. It's an unfiltered story that gives us hope and it leads us ultimately to Jesus. You know, many of our parents, um, maybe in this room, and I'm a parent also, and I'm trying to tell a better story. A better story for my family, for myself, for my kids, that ultimately they would hear that biblical story, that they would see Jesus along the way and they would receive Jesus in their life. And there might be some of you in this room that maybe you're in high school, maybe in college, maybe you are just a single young adult and you're going through some questions right now, difficult questions. Maybe you have some doubts, maybe you are going through at times of a little bit of confusion. And you're in the low part of your story right now. And you're trying to figure out what is the right steps that you need to take so you can get yourself out. You know, wherever you might be and whatever reason of why you come here today, we need to keep turning back to the scriptures because the scriptures are, are filled with all the things that are good and right and beautiful. You know, these, it's in God's word that it is, you know, as we go and do our good works in life right now, it's directly connected to the teachings that we find within the scriptures. And that is the reason why when we come here on Sunday, it's the core purpose of our worship, to get into his word. 
Because the better we understand God's word, then all of a sudden we live better lives. You know, none of us has ever arrived. None of us, you know, we're, we're getting a little bit more mature every single day. But it's, we have to do that through his word. Last week, Pastor Steve talked about Leah's tears. And today I'm going to be talking about Elijah's discouragement and depression. You know, we're going to be looking at 1 Kings chapter 19. So if you're willing to kind of open up your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 19. And, um, you know, it's whatever you, what you have in your app or your Bible and everything. And what we realize is the fact that the Lord doesn't hold his hard truth from those who go and read his word. And so today we get to go and see, last week we got to see this realistic, unfiltered, unhindered view of God's people. Many times they're warts and all. Many times they're dysfunction. Today we get to look a little bit at just like the discouragement. Many times going through a hard time, the hardships they go through. If there's anything I would, would like you to remember today is this, is that in our darkest moments, we need to go and draw near to God. As we draw near to God, you know, that's where we're going to find our way out, and maybe along the way, we will find Jesus. You know, so does Elijah in his darkest moment, who has come to the end of his rope. And so the questions for us today is, and I had some questions in the midst of reading this, is how did Elijah end up like this anyway, right? How did he go down this pathway where he started spiraling down from just discouragement all the way to depression? And how, did, how does God come alongside and approach Elijah in the midst of this time where he's just going through a hard time? And finally, I mean, I've been talking about story. This is a unified story. How does this fit in with this unified story in bringing us to Jesus? So when we read just from the beginning, I'm going to read just a portion of it. I'm going to be reading a lot today, so keep your apps open today. In chapter 19, it says, Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. He, she was going to kill him. And then he was afraid and he rose and he ran for his life and he, became, he came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and he just leaves his servant there. And as we get into this topic, depression, it's not the same as sadness. You know, right, there's different levels of discouragement that we all can go through. You know, sometimes we get discouraged and we just kind of bounce right back up. For others, they go through this time where something happens and something unexpected happens and all of a sudden... It's a longer journey for some. And to, to, for them to find their way out, they really need help because it's very important. It's very vital for them to get help so that way they can find their way out of this depression. And as we look at Elijah's discouragement that leads to depression, I want you to know the fact that in today's world, the, in today's world this is kind of like a buzzword, right? Things like mental health, depression, loneliness, isolation. I mean, these are big issues that we need to go and tackle. And I have to let you know, um, there is no pat answers um, because it's a very important issue. And I also want you to know the fact that as we talk about this today, I don't want you to think that I'm giving some kind of standardized answers to a very complex problem because it's very important. But I do want you to do this. As, as we get into his word, I, I, I want to kind of stay true to as we are going through this parts of the scripture, 
how God comes alongside Elijah and goes through his issue. But my hope is the fact that along the way, that we will come and see the fact that God does not also give pat answers. That he doesn't go and handle every single situation the same. That he comes alongside of us individually. He's a relational God. You know, at times he speaks to us as a group, but he also speaks to the one. And he speaks to us individually. And I, I, but I also want you to know this. You know, in the midst of all of this, wherever you're at right now, that my God, which is hopefully your God, and if you don't know who Jesus Christ is yet, I would love to introduce you to him. But my God loves you very much. In the midst of all the things that are happening right now, maybe in your life, that he, is, he truthfully is near. And for myself and also the pastors in our church, if you need to, we would love to go and hear your story. We would love to go and hear what is happening in your life, and we would love to give as much help as we can. But if it's beyond our expertise, we would love to go and re- help you to get the help that you do need. But it seems very strange, you know, to talk about this guy Elijah, right? His discouragement and depression during the Advent season. Behind me, I have the word joy, right? And I'm talking about depression. But I think it's very important, especially during this season. And even in the Bible, actually some of the great heroes of faith had times when they felt very low. In fact, they despised of life. People like Abraham and Moses and Jonah and the Apostle Peter, even the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul actually used that words in 2 Corinthians um, verse, um, chapter 1. He says that he's so tired, and he says that we despise of life itself. And that was Paul. So how does Elijah end up like this? I, I gave the AV team a little um, resiliency chart. If you can kind of put that up right now. And it's, it's just a resiliency model that I took from a book called Inside Out. And you th- think about the movie, the motions go up and down. I used this model when we were teaching like kids and teachers and psychologists and first responders. And we all go through a certain pathway when things don't work out as expected, when things don't, you know, we just kind of are shocked by a certain situation. We go down to this place where, you know what, there's going to be times where just something happens in our life. We get a little confused, like, what the heck happened? And all of a sudden, we go become disengaged. Sometimes it ends up in anger. Sometimes it ends up in just, it just feels like this is cloud that is in front of me. Then we, so we start to withdraw. We think, because of the situation, I, I, I just need to be alone. I'm going to push away my friends. I'm going to push away my family so I can just be alone. And all of a sudden, we move ourselves to this place that we feel very vulnerable, maybe sitting in a room. Sometimes it happens physically in the sense where you feel like you're shaking or you feel like you, have, you can't breathe or this sense of anxiety where you feel like you're absolutely distressed. And then you fall even lower and you feel like, you know what, there's nothing else I can do. And you just kind of sit there. You know, as we remember all of these types of things, I, I think about Elijah I think about the fact that I like remembering Elijah as the victorious one, the one who defeated the prophets of Baal, the 450 prophets of Baal. You know, during Elijah's time, it was about 700 years before the birth of Christ that Elijah kind of comes into the scene. God's people decide to go and leave God and worship other gods, especially the god Baal. 
And this happens because King Ahab, he was the king. He marries this Phoenician princess, Jezebel, wicked lady. But she brings in her God into God's people. And they start leaving God, and then all of a sudden they start worshiping Baal. You know, Baal was known as the fertility God who basically was able to help people to kind of have babies and also to go and, um, you know, be able to produce crops here on earth, right? That's what they believed. But God goes and does this. He goes and brings a drought to the land, and Elijah comes into the scene, and he has an opportunity to show who God is. And that's the kind of Elijah I remember. He goes and challenges the prophets of Baal on Mount, Car- Mount Carmel. And he says, you know what? Let's see whose God is real. Right? You pick a bull. I pick a bull. Whosoever God brings fire to it, that's the true God. Elijah allows him to go first. Nothing happens. He prays. And all of a sudden, there's a ball of fire that comes from the sky. And it goes and burns the sacrifice, burns the wood, burns the stones. It sucks up the water and even the dismantles the ground right there. People can't help but believe the fact that, you know what? The Lord is God. And that's the Elijah I remember. He kills all the prophets of Baal. You know, in verse 46 in chapter 18, it talks about the fact that after that mighty victory, it says, the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, like no duh, right? And then all of a sudden, he does something strange. He gathers his garment. He kind of picks up you know, his clothes, and he starts running to this place called Jezreel. He runs this place of Jezreel because that's the capital during that time. And it was the capital. That's where Ahab and Jezebel were ruling from. And so he was running to the city because he just saw this incredible victory. So he's running the city, hoping the fact that, you know what? They were going to acknowledge God is God. They're going to pick him up, you know, maybe celebrate, put him, put him on their shoulders and celebrate. Yeah, your God is true. Or maybe he thought there was going to be an incredible riot where they would run into the temples of Baal and tear down all of the statues. Or maybe there would be a change of government where Ahab and also Jezebel would step down from their throne and acknowledge that Elijah's God was the real true God. But what happens? You know, I have this second chart up here where, you know, that same thing with the spiral, but now it's some scriptures there. This is how he falls down into his depression. In 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 1, we read this, that Ahab told Jezebel all he had done. But what is Jezebel's response? By tomorrow, Elijah, I'm going to kill you. Hold on. No, did you see what I just did to your prophets? Didn't you see what God just did? And he's just a little confused. All of a sudden, he moves down to this place where he says that, that he was afraid. And he starts disengaging. It says the fact in verse 3 that he was afraid. And, and all of a sudden he rose and he ran for his life. And he came to this place called Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. Not only did he withdraw, but he ran for his life. He runs actually 100, about 100 to 130 miles with his servant that's like five marathons. This might, might, might have taken a week, maybe two. I don't know how long it takes for you to run. But he, he also, when he gets there, he leaves his servant there. And now he is alone and now he's vulnerable. You know, Elijah wasn't a rich man. And that's why he had a servant. 
Elijah was a prophet. And so the reason why he had a prophet and he had servants was kind of like his followers. And, it, and so the representation when he leaves his servant there, it was the fact that, you know what? He was kind of quitting the ministry. That, you know what? I'm just going to leave everything behind. I'm going to quit my job. I'm going to run from my, what I'm supposed to do. And I'm just going to go and leave. It says the fact that he actually goes on one more day's journey in verse 4. In the fact that he went a day's journey into the wilderness and then he just goes and sits down under a broom tree. You know, I kind of wonder why. I think, why is it that in times that we are struggling, that we push everybody away? We push our friends, we put our, our family, we push the people that could really help us. You know, when we're spiraling down, things just don't make sense, and we, we're not thinking straight. And he puts himself in a place where he's just by himself. You know, he, it's there that he says, and he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. He starts comparing himself to others. He, he's stuck. And he lays down under a tree, hoping that the fact that God would kill him. You know, when I look at something like this, I have to remember the fact that in our darkest times, we need to draw near to God. And I wonder if Elijah, in the midst of all of this, he knew that God was kind of near. The reason why I say this is because in the midst of his depression and moving away, running away from everything, trying to get as far away from everything, he's running. But he realizes the fact that as, as much as he is running away, he asked permission of God to go and take his life. That and somehow his life didn't belong to him. That as far as he was running away, that God still had a hold and a reach upon his life. And many times we need to remember that we're never too far from God's reach. We're never too far from God's hold. That God is always near. And, and I think Elijah kind of realizes this. Another thing I, I want you to say is the fact that I didn't show you this chart and this resiliency model um, to make this a psychology thing. The reason why I brought that up is because there is so much wisdom that is already found within the Bible that was written before all of these other models were ever made. That the Bible is actually very relevant for the chaos and the uncertainty in our times. That God, you know what, before all of these things of research and everything, we make these models and we think they're so good, we read these books and how to go and help us in the self-help books. Before all of that, God already knew. And we're just trying to figure that part out. And so we need to get back to his word because that's where we find wisdom and we find truth. So how did God come alongside Elijah? You know, how did God approach Elijah in the midst of his discouragement and depression? If you were here earlier, uh, you saw the reading of the devotion. But let me read a portion of that. It says, immediately afterwards, however, Elijah descended into a dark night of the soul, depressed. Running for his life from Jezebel, he convinced himself that he was the only faithful one left, that he had this narrow view. When you're going through struggles and hard times, you just, your, your, your focus, your perspective becomes so narrow, and you start focusing just upon yourself. He says, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. And he said, where did it get him? So how did God respond? And in our devotion, it says, in a word, gently. 
How does God come alongside and approach Elijah? I think God comes alongside Elijah with gentleness, but also with grace. That God comes alongside of each of us really holistically. And the fact that, you know what, for all of us as individuals, we all need a very special touch from God. And God knew Elijah. He knew what he was going through, and he was going to meet Elijah on what he needed at that moment. So the number one is this, that God approaches Elijah for his physical needs. And this starts in verse 5, that he lay down and slept under a tree. That God knew this prophet so well that he had expended all this energy up in Mount Carmel, and he was running around. He ran five marathons. And what did Elijah need? He needed a break, right? He just needed rest. And after he rested, all of a sudden it says that, and behold, an angel just touched him and said, arise and eat. He wakes up, and all of a sudden at his head there's some food, a cake um, baked on hot coals, a nice warm fire, and also a jar of water. He eats, he drinks, and he falls asleep again. God comes alongside a second time with the angel, and he touches him again. And he says, arise and eat. You know, this time, he knows the fact that this depression is going to last longer than just a week. He, didn't, he wasn't going to bounce right back up. And he says that the food I'm going to give you right now is going to strengthen you for the next 40 days and 40 nights. And he knew that Elijah wanted to go and travel to Horeb, the Mount of God. I'm so glad that God's not like us in the fact that when I think about him, I, I think that he's a wise father who deals with us. You know, he just quit his job. He went and quit the ministry. He let go of his staff. He's, in, he's wallowing in his self-pity. He says, God, just finish up the job. In fact, just finish up me. What would you do? You know, as a parent, I don't know, I kind of feel like I would look at, look at somebody, I would slap him across the head. Well, what the heck are you doing, Elijah? Right? Give him a little lecture. Give him a little bit of like what is the right thing that he should be doing. But God doesn't do that. He ministers to him with rest and refreshment. He touches him. Very few words. You know, for all of us, many times when we're going through a low time, we need time for just a touch, maybe a hug, maybe for someone just to sit next to us and just maybe not say a word. And God goes and meets his physical needs at this point. But God works with us holistically that he also approaches us with our thoughts and also with just the, just the emotions that we're going through. That Elijah, he runs to Mount Horeb, and you might recognize this name because you might not recognize Mount Horeb, but he, he goes to this place called Mount Sinai, the place where God goes and meets Moses with the burning bush, gives him the Ten Commandments, and he, go, he, and he goes and camps there. Some scholars would say the fact that, you know what, he actually camps on this mountain, the exact same place, in this crevice within this rock, the same place that Moses went to. And maybe he went there because, you know what, he just quit everything and he's trying to figure out, who are you, God? What the heck are you doing in the midst of all these things? Nothing's working out. He wanted to hear from God. It says that he travels 40 days and 40 nights. And I was talking to Pastor Irvin. He goes, you know what, um, this is supposed to last like 10 days journey from where he was at it took him 40 days i mean he's moping around people say like when you're going through a low time just go and just go and exercise he had a lot of exercise right during this time so it 
it turns from a week to a day towards a month, a little bit longer, and he's stuck in this depression. So God approaches Elijah to meet his mental and emotional needs. That's step number two. Number verse 9, it says, Then he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He just asked a question. You know, many times when God asks a question, he's not looking for answers. He's God. He already knows what's going on. You know, many times what God is doing is like, you know what? He wants you to take time to self-reflect so that you realize what you're doing. And what he does is that he goes and meets his mental and emotional needs. In fact, you know, he goes and he asks the question twice. Twice, Elijah answers this way. He said in verse 10, that I have been very jealous for the Lord. And the word in Hebrew, jealous, is a word that is actually reserved for God, that it's about God's jealousy. But he takes it upon himself. That I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel has forsaken their covenant, tore down their altars, killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life and take it away. His perspective is a little wrong, self-pity. What does God do? He just listens. He doesn't lecture. He doesn't give advice. He doesn't command him what to do. He just listens. And many times in our lives, we just need time to express. We need time to event, and God allows him to do that. But you know what? We can't do it alone. And so number three, the way that God approaches Elijah, he, appro- he approaches Elijah with his social needs, that he restores back relationship with God and also with others. In verse 11, it says, And he said to them, Go out, to the, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And, before, and, and behold, the Lord passed by, and, a great, and then he sends a great wind that tore up the mountains and broke the rocks. Then all of a sudden, he sends an earthquake, and he also sends a fire. In each one of these three, it says the fact that the Lord was not in them. But after the fire, all of a sudden, in a sound of a low whisper, in Hebrew, it talks about a quiet silence. God just kind of whispers to him. And what's important for us to know is the fact that the way that God approaches Elijah, the way he speaks to him, it was not through a hurricane. It was not going to be through some kind of earthquake. It wasn't going to be through some kind of like fire, right? Elijah needed someone just to come and just talk to him in a silent whisper. You know, some people might say at this point, the point is the fact that, you know what? We should all make sure we get away. Make sure we read God's word. We take time to pray so that way we can hear God speak. And that was true for Elijah. But for some of us, maybe God needs to come a different way. Maybe God needs to come maybe in a strong little hurricane and mess things up a little bit so that way he can put things back together. Maybe for some of us, maybe, you know what, God needs to kind of shake things up so everything, our schedules and everything and what we plan needs to be torn down so he can rebuild it back the way that he needs to. Or maybe for sometimes, he needs to bring a fire. He brings a fire in our life because there's some things we need to cut away in our life and we need to put into the fire so he can be burned away so he can give us something new. Our God is a God who works in so many different ways because he works for the one. And for Elijah, he needed a whisper. You know, for some of us, you know, Elijah needed rest. But for some of us, maybe we need to get up and we need to start moving. For Elijah, he needed time to talk and, and for someone just to listen. Maybe for us, 
Maybe we just need to learn how to listen more and speak a little less. But God approaches us holistically and giving us what we need. He doesn't just restore relationship with God, but he restores relationship with others. You know, the Lord said to him in verse 15, go and return your way to the wilderness of um, Damascus. And the reason why he sends him there, he's supposed to anoint three people, Haziel, Jehu, and also Elisha. And so he brings some, he restores back a little bit of his staff again. He calls him back to, calls him back to ministry. And not only that, in verse 18, it says, And I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. He actually restores, he gives him a bigger, broader perspective that he was not only the only one. He didn't do that from the very beginning, but he kind of shows them and he restores back socially just, wow, there's actually people around me that I can go and do things with. So he does all of that physically, mentally, emotionally, socially. But how does this all fit in? Because those are the same things that maybe in the world, that, that's the kind of advice that they would give to us. And there is one thing that only God can do. And that is that God approaches Elijah for his spiritual needs. That we're all sinners in need of a savior. And we need someone to come and be able to come alongside of us and die basically for our sins. And that's where Jesus comes in. You know, did you know that God cares more about your relationship with him, that he wants to be near you more than what you do? Many times we think that we need to do so many things for God so that way we can have a relationship with him. All he cares is the fact that you draw near to him. If I go back to verse 11 and... Um, and I had to look this up, make sure this is right. You know, it, it was a part where, you know, he was restoring relationship back to him. But when God shows up in a strong wind and also in an earthquake and also within the fire, who sent it? It was actually God himself, right? God was in those things. Some people, scholars would say, these are also judgments and punishment that Elijah deserved. That he deserved that, that whirlwind. That he deserved the earthquake, that he deserved the fire in his life. But he's standing on this rock, this mount, and the only thing that takes punishment is the rock. And many scholars would say that, you know, this represented Christ, that Christ took all of his punishment, all of the judgment that Elijah deserved, all of his pain, all his discouragement, all of his depression, all those things Christ took upon himself. You know, we can look upon this and the fact that we realize the fact that during this season of a Christmas season, that we're reminded about why Jesus was born. In a chaotic world, in a time when things are just uncertain, in the times of depression and discouragement and we need some help, that God sends his only son, Jesus Christ, to die for all of us. That he is the rock who takes on our discouragement. He takes on our pain. He takes on our depression. He takes on our sin. You know, was Elijah a perfect prophet? We realize the fact that he wasn't. But he was one of, the, one of two prophets who ultimately would be taken up into heaven. Did you know that Elijah, even after he was called, wasn't a perfect prophet? He was supposed to go and anoint um, Hehaz, Jehu, and then also Elisha. You know, he actually only did two. The first one was an Assyrian king who basically never really came to know God. But he was still supposed to anoint him. 
Actually, Elisha actually anoints um, Haziel. But even in the midst of all of it, not even doing everything he was supposed to do, God protects him. And we have that kind of a God, the God who comes alongside of us and protects us, that he wants to build a better story within our lives, a story of, of living hope, a story of just redemption and hope and a beautiful future. You know, during this season, actually Christmas is just around the corner. You know, there's a better story for all of us. And I want to ask and challenge you on this, that you would invite yourself to come and make sure you hear his story. But you invite a friend or a family member who needs to hear from Jesus because this is a story that needs to be told and it's a story that will change not only our culture but also their future. Let's pray. So, Lord, I just come before you. I thank you, Father, for this time and this place that we're able to just go into worship you through your word. I pray, Lord God, that you would help us during this time to really reflect. And, and for those of you who are here, maybe take time to reflect on where you are at right now and what you are doing and allow God to go and speak to you. I pray, Lord God, that during this time that we would know the fact that you are near. And for some, maybe they have fallen away and they have run away as far away as they could but at the same time let them know the fact that you are drawing near to them and that you have your hand on them also i pray lord god for this christmas season that we would understand the fact that you are so close to us and that you are so near and that you know what we will look towards you during this season we thank you in jesus name i do pray amen